Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really happy anytime I have a return engagement on the show. This is Al Kingsley's second appearance. He's on his way to a Trending in Ed refrigerator magnet. I'm very happy to have Al back on the show. Welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you very much. And of course, I'm here because I want that fridge magnet. So, you know, I'm glad we're on course. <laughs> exactly. Incentives. It's all about incentives in this day and age. Last time we went deep on your book, My Secret EdTech Diary. We'll include links to that episode and to that book in the show notes for this episode. Can you catch folks up on what that was and just in a nutshell, what that book was about? I certainly can. I mean, obviously an amazing book. Stunning in every way. Am I allowed to say that? Sure. For those listening and have never heard about it, no, in simple terms, and I, you, you'll get the, the sense that I like to have a good joke about things and not take it too seriously. EdTech is something we're all in education aware of. Some of us are involved in and some of us are not so sure about it. So my secret EdTech diary is just trying to make the language, the concepts, the opportunities of EdTech accessible to everybody. What it means, lessons we've learned, opportunities to take forward. Yeah, I was... Happy that we touched on the imposter syndrome and growth mindset around some of this stuff, because I think frequently it's almost like two camps. There's the technical people and the non-technical people and never the twain shall meet. You know, this is the whole notion of throwing things over the cubicle wall and never really connecting with people on the other side. You're someone who's been on the other side, but you've also worn a bunch of different hats mainly in the UK, but you are also an international man of mystery. I'm always impressed by your posts on LinkedIn and elsewhere from around the world. Can you catch folks up a bit on some of the hats that you wear and how that's allowed you to maybe break out of some of the more traditional understandings of tech versus non-tech and, and all these things? I'm happy to, Michael, though I think we should perhaps just linger on the, the mental picture that I'm now Austin Powers. I think <laughs> I'll, I'll take that as a compliment somewhere along the way. I do wear many hats because I'm passionate and I love learning about all different strands of education. The sensible hat is the last 30 years working in the edtech space, CEO of NetSport and developing lots of cool tools for schools around the world. Currently working about 110 countries, so starting to get our word out there. The passion for me is about education and, and changing young people's lives. I'm chair of a multi-academy trust in the UK. Think of it like a school district, a cluster of schools in the East of England. I'm chair of an alternative provision academy. That's education for young people that struggle in a mainstream setting mm -hmm. for various needs. I chair our region's special educational needs and disabilities board, looking at the interventions and support we put in place for our learners for a range of different disabilities. And then I also have a, a role with the Regional Schools Commissioner looking after academies. So all of the schools around the, the east of England getting involved in supporting their growth and development, but also providing support where they're struggling in different aspects. And alongside that, I have lots of hats, employment and skills board I lead, apprenticeships, anything that involves learning, whether young people are three years old or frankly, 73, we never stop learning, do we? Right. Right. And, uh, I believe you had a stint at Hogwarts or maybe, no, 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 no I'm sorry. That was, <laughs> that was another guest I was thinking of, but yeah, and you've been doing this for quite some time. You mentioned that 30 year run and then also being involved on the other side, which is kind of like the equivalent of a school board or a trustee over here, mm. or someone who's working at a district level. In the U.S., I'm always curious when we have folks who are more from a global perspective, you know, you mentioned 110 countries, which is pretty impressive, as is cool tools for schools. That's got a little ring 
to it. So, it, you know, so I tried not that quickly. Exactly. Let's get, let's get our team working on that immediately. But can you provide a little bit of perspective on what's the same or different about the UK and any way in which your experience in K-12 might shed a little different light on how we might think about how things operate in the U.S.? You know, travel around the world and deal with different school systems. I think the most important thing we understand, frankly, is there's, there's more commonality than there is difference. It is all about good people trying to do the right thing, right opportunities for young people. Without a doubt, there are different challenges. So, so maybe I might say in different parts of the world, there are better funding models for education. Let's put it that way. And that, you know, of course it starts with, let's make sure we've got great school buildings and technology and the right resources within those schools. And we recognize that sometimes the U S isn't always the very front of the curve when it comes to that, nor my ad in many schools in the UK, it's by no means a judgment on, on any sense of it. The second part I think is, and this is something that has deteriorated probably over the years is, is that respect for teachers and that respect can be shown in different ways. It can be the frustrating way that perhaps parents engage with teachers and question their judgments. But I also think increasingly, and I've seen it quite a lot in the US is probably from higher up political leaders systems that don't show and appreciate what is involved in being an educator, that the fact that the role is far more than just simply that the sharing and acquisition of knowledge, but it's the skills, the well-being, that you know, the, the social support, empathy, and all that goes with it. And that's where we see in different countries, though, perhaps a different shift. We've had similar challenges in the UK, to be fair, but I think one of the things that probably differentiates most. One is funding and one is actual respect and trust in the profession. And, and the reason why those kind of come top of the list for me is because it's perhaps no surprise that at the same time, we then see the follow-up challenge as a result of some of that, which is actually we struggle to get people to join the profession. And more importantly, we struggle to retain the best, the most experienced because people either burn out or find it's just not sustainable. And that's a real slow drip, but actually I think it's building to a real pivotal moment in education in many countries around the world where we simply, no matter where the will might be, we're not going to have the capacity to deliver what our young people deserve. And I think that's one of those cases where some countries we're just more vocal about challenging and expressing our frustrations politically and otherwise that undermines. And then there's also always the question in every country about the different types of schools we have in our systems and the parity, the funding that goes with them. You know, the US has the extra variance of lots of different states within a nation, whereas in most countries, it's just one state, but that creates nuances and differences that are also a level there. Yeah. Most of the rest of it ultimately is what do we actually believe the role of the teacher is? Mm -hmm. And I'd argue maybe the last two years haven't been the barest benchmark. But, you know, increasingly the role of the educator is far more to be supporting and nurturing the welfare and the resilience and the skills and nurture within children, as much as it is about actual teaching and learning. And on one hand, I'm kind of pleased in a way, because I think we've got a bit wrapped up in acquisition of knowledge as being the sole and only measure of a successful education system. When actually what we really want to do is grow and nurture happy, healthy, well-skilled, resilient young people who are equipped to go to the outside world with the tools they need to stand them in good stead for the future. And I don't think many of our school systems in terms of what we're expecting them to learn and how we're measuring their learning 
right. put that weighting quite where I would recommend. Now that's a personal view. And then he will be entitled to say, well, what do you know, Al? And the truth of it is, it's just a view, but I share it. And I think many in education, I know because we are so reflective in a mindset and empathy is at the heart of what we do will also, I think, align with that we perhaps haven't got the needle quite right on the dial. Yeah. You, you mentioned measurement, which is kind of where I wanted to go next. You know, how do you measure that a school is delivering, that a classroom is delivering for individuals, for students, for families? We are faced with some real challenges around measurement culture and assessment culture, yeah. uh, a lot of testing that is happening throughout our K-12 education system, certainly here in the U.S., but I think that is probably a, a broader trend we're seeing as well. I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on testing. Well, I'm, I, I might come across as a bit controversial here. So, so the truth is sometimes to encourage conversation, you have to pitch the point or the question slightly further away from the dial than you might actually believe. Mm. So it's easy to start the question by saying, what's the purpose of testing? What are we actually achieving by it? And I, I, I wrote an article recently that talked from a, a, an assessment around NAEP. Now that's not to suggest in any shape or form that, that I think children should go through their academic journey without any form of measure. How on earth would we know how they're progressing? And fair dues, how would we know how well a school is performing? The problem is when we put so much weight on certain types of tests and assessments, and this is not a US specific thing. It's a conversation I have in the UK and I've seen in other countries. The very simplistic level is actually, if we think about any of us and we take a snapshot based on our experiences of the last two or three years, the assumption that we will all be tip top, ready to go at 9am on a given morning. And in a two or three hour window, we can accurately reflect and share all the things we've learned that are salient and important. And at the end of that period, that will be a complete assessment of how successful my last two years have been yeah. to me is a fallacy. Now, one of the challenges with that is if I know that that's the only way my performance is managed, imagine as, a, as an employee in a business, if there was no other metrics that we used in terms of my performance, mm -hmm. I would end up finding ways that I, I work towards the test. I, I would start shaping things that magically score in the right boxes for that assessment. And reality happens, I believe, is what we do is we narrow. We keep on narrowing because we're, we're learning for or teaching to the test. And when we look around the world and let me shift the angle, you know, there's some great work being done by the OECD and many will be familiar with the PISA rankings of 15 year olds, mm -hmm. which, which is intended to give us a snapshot of where are the high performing school systems around the world. Mm -hmm. now, now, in one sense, I shouldn't be too critical because I didn't come up with a better method. And so I should really shut up and, and respect the fact that that's been a useful score and it has been used for various you know, measurements of where we need to focus resources into certain countries. But my point is, and this is work that the OECD are now doing. So again, there's been part of my mindset of edu sponge. I pick up ideas around the world and think, now that's an interesting point. What is a high performing school system? So we can tie into our earlier point. Is it a school system where children achieve the highest grades, English, math, and sciences, and maybe some STEM subjects at a given point in time? Or is it a school system where children acquire a real breadth of skills as well as resilience, actually enjoy their education, develop a love of reading and learning, 
and, and leave school with fond, happy memories and a real breadth of skills? Or is it we want that narrow acquisition of knowledge that we can check them off on the list? Mm -hmm. Because if we think of the broader measure and the OECD now are working stakeholders, there, looking much more at, at, you know, education as being more of a flourishing system. You start to question whether actually that, that singular message or measure of skills acquisition is really what we want to judge our learners by. I'd also add wearing a, a different hat. If we think about equality and inclusivity, is it actually a fair system where all of our learners are measured based on those fixed exams at the end of a certain period? Do we really think that everybody performs in the same way, in the same setting or context? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of other exams, plenty of other ways to measure. And so maybe I'm moving more on thinking that formative versus summative, where we'd say, maybe back to that trust conversation. Actually, I trust the judgment of that teacher that's been in the classroom with that child for the last three years to have a pretty good grip on their progress and development of understanding mm -hmm. more so than that snapshot at the end. Couldn't we, for example, have a system, and we do have some qualifications in the UK called BTECs that follow that model, where a large part of the assessment and the scores towards a qualification are done on that work in the classroom and the coursework and work that the child prepares. And a small percentage is scored by an exam at the end, a bit of a fusion of the two. And to me, that seems fair. Now, some will say, ah, yeah, but there's too much waiting on the teacher's assumption. So that's why it's better to have an external exam. So, you know, part of me says, well, fair enough. That's a good point, but we're still back to that bit about, so why don't we trust the person in the room? But then we go on and we think when we leave school, we go to college, university, and actually that's how our qualifications are achieved. It's largely by coursework, work that we do, essays that we write in our own time, given as long as we need to prepare. We can spend as many hours a day working on our research and writing our essays that goes towards our final grade along with an exam. So the system's fine for the, the most high level exams, but somehow at school, that's not a fair system. And, and really it's about recognizing that we're all different. We all learn in different ways. We all act in different ways. So I think the way that we, we test should be as fair as it can be. Mm. Now, I suppose the final point on that one, really, if we think about the picture is if we want to do testing and we want to do standardized testing, and in many cases, it ends up with some kind of league table, what are we hoping to achieve? Are we hoping to celebrate those that did really well, or are we hoping to point a finger at those that didn't do well? Because one of the things I'd say is, yes, you could use it as a lever to encourage schools to improve. But let's assume they were trying to do their best. Coming bottom of the league table, near the bottom of the league table, doesn't immediately spark transformation in an organization. In fact, you might make it harder. It could become a self-fulfilling prophecy because it might be harder to recruit good staff to a school that's already flagged as one that's underperforming. Right. So now we're making it really tough. Maybe we could say, well, if you're underperforming, as you have in the US in, you know, in certain circumstances, we'll give you some extra funding that will help you get better. So you get some extra funding, you get more staff in because your problem was really about capacity and amongst other things and your performance increases. And then we say, well done, your performance has increased. We're taking that extra funding away. You don't need it anymore. Great. And what happens? Well, maybe a few years later, we're back on that roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Surely if we've figured out that extra funding was the magic bullet to achieve the right outcomes, then let's just agree extra funding full stop and keep it at a level that's sustainable for all schools. Right. So like all these things, it's the debate over the carrot and the stick. I absolutely believe, and if I'm wearing my parents' hat amongst many, 
I want to know what the best schools are in my area. I want to know my child's getting a great education. So this isn't about somehow schools shouldn't be measured for performance, but there's different ways you can measure the quality of teaching, the lesson planning, the, the leadership, the other aspects of school life mm. without making the measure quite so narrow and focused, particularly when schools don't always have a control over their cohort. We're not mm -hmm. comparing like we like. Right. So. Without me getting too controversial, that's why I think we get a bit too wrapped up in those formalized tests and to yeah. think a bit bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. And not to mention those tests frequently are almost exclusively cognitive in their nature. They're not necessarily addressing the whole child. You know, we've talked a lot about the trauma, the psychological trauma. I know you've done a lot of work on digital literacy and training the more civic character of students as being part of the mission of schools. Frequently those things, plus some of the emerging skills that you're talking about, they emerge quickly and may not be institutionalized through a large testing apparatus. How do we allow for room to grow in these different areas? It does seem like education could be more radically transformed, yet the actual rate of change within educational institutions seems to be a little slower. I mean, the first thing just to, to be clear on, and I don't wish to upset anybody because I suspect most listeners will probably have figured this out. We don't get to choose in education, our rate of change and what we think is important. The world of work, the workplace, employment, life skills dictates. We've seen a paradigm shift in the last two years in the way that employers are engaging in their workforce. They're developing digital skills. They're working remotely in hybrid scenarios, whatever it may be. We've got whole new sectors of growth that are around new technologies and the way that we work with digital and digital's a, a key lever in how businesses have accelerated. They dictate the skills that our young people need when they leave education. So whether we like it or not, this kind of concept, a bit like that, well, we've managed to make it through the pandemic. Shall we carry on using technology in a more effective way in our classrooms? Well, unless we want our children to leave education without those digital skills to be safe and competent online, we've got no choice. We have to do it. So then we kind of think, well, is there an overlap between these things? And again, this is very, very simplistic. So I'm just talking to kind of as a, as a high level, haven't we learned that there is in some cases, and I always use the where appropriate, there are ways, for example, that the effective use of technology can not only support student learning and acquisition of knowledge as well as skills, but can also help when it comes to staff time and well-being. Haven't we seen new technology that can be used effectively to, in some cases, automate and speed up the feedback loop? Haven't we seen that that benefits a child by the chance they get quick, instant feedback and potentially questions that make them think and self-reflect on what they've learned? Haven't we seen the advent of AI-based solutions for personalized learning? They don't replace, but in addition to that great quality teaching and learning in the classroom, provide an opportunity to either really cement their knowledge and understanding on topics or use those personalized learning tools to stretch our more able learners and drop back a few stages for those that are struggling and rebuild the foundations. Haven't we seen that there's great tools that make things easy where depending on that, the cohort of our students and parents, we can engage with voice notes rather than written notes to make sure it's accessible to those that don't have American as their first language from a written perspective. 
haven't we seen that there's better ways to have parent conferences and get greater engagement by using some of the conferencing tools we've used for the classroom mm -hmm. to make sure we get better parental engagement? And we already know, and we've known for decades, that particularly for our younger learners, the more we can get parents involved in teaching and learning, the more of an impact it will have on a child's development in those formative years. Haven't we now got a raft of tools that lets us do more of the, the formative assessment, the quick questioning and feedback or flipping and doing digitally peer assessments and self-assessments, but also tracking the outcomes so that we can see gaps in learning and understanding. You know, much of the conversation, I know we're on a similar kind of wavelength now is about data uh, and, and data comes as a byproduct of all the things we use with technology. And I know we stress where appropriate, because sometimes there's plenty of cracking teaching that goes on. And I probably shouldn't use that term without translating from a, an English perspective. So cracking means brilliant, amazing, great. But from a, a great teaching perspective, some of the best lessons don't have a jot of technology in the room. It's just that human interaction. But what I do say is we've got a wealth of data and sometimes the, the rush is the more data equals a bigger badge or medal or fridge magnet in your case. But in truth, it's not. It's about the right data that actually shapes and informs. And there's a whole journey now on how we can use the data captured, the relevant data, the data that actually is beneficial to us in a much more nuanced way to benefit and inform our teachers so that we can make sure we can revisit whether there are gaps in learnings or trends across a cohort of students. Mm -hmm. And equally, we can, we can learn our lessons and say the other way around, we also need to be more transparent in what data we store and collect so that we don't have privacy as, as that other challenge. And that's about practice and sharing and transparency, as well as good thorough checks by schools before they adopt certain technologies. Mm -hmm. So, so I'd argue, yes, there's, there's more we can do. We can, we can look at some of those more formative things when it comes to the summative stuff, the exams and stuff, I'm not against exams. I just don't feel that, that my entire judgment of my success or failing in a particular subject should come down to, I think we could be much more structured, lots of small exams, maybe small checkpoint exams that all add towards that final score, things that will not put the extra pressures of, of social, emotional, mental health and well-being on our learners building up to that big day. And I think that's important as well as we've also learned that actually we need to be much more respectful and involved teachers much more in the conversation. So mm -hmm. respectful in terms of their role of what they're doing for our future population and our workforce, but also in not choosing from top down to deliver new tools, solutions, approaches without giving the educators a voice to both understand why we're doing things and what the outcomes are and that they have an opportunity to shape what will work best for their class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agency is, is so important really across the board. You also mentioned parents. One of the trends we're seeing lately is this pent up energy in the U S around parents in some ways being polarized to the point where they're confronting their schools, they're confronting their school boards. They're again, perhaps questioning the role of the teacher being a teacher in K-12 in the U S is certainly challenging. That's probably true around the globe. Any thoughts as someone who's been engaged in a number of different capacities around leading schools, thinking about school leadership, thinking about getting involved, any perspective you can share on that? Well, I think the first thing that really springs to mind, I, I, obviously my first thing is, you know, I, I just think it's so, so unfair more often than not on teachers that the challenge from the ill-informed can, can create such pressure and distraction from the thing that they really want to do mm. and that parents can be so 
quick to dismiss all the time and effort and investment a teacher's put into their child over a particular topic that might be the hot topic of the day or the week. I suppose the reality is, whilst I can't offer any, you know, magic bullet that would address those things, I do think all paths lead to leadership of your school or your district. It's not a battle that teachers should be asked to fight. They've got enough on their plates. This is about schools, districts, having a clear and transparent method for engaging with parents, explaining the rationale behind and being open and honest about what is or isn't reasonable within the capacity of the school. And there are some times where schools just simply do not have the bodies and the resource to do everything that a parent might like. There are things that we do in education that we do because it's been proven through research to be the right things to do that not always parents will understand. I mentioned data earlier. There will be some parents who believe a school should hold no data about their child at any time. It's not their right. Yet fundamentally, we need to hold data to undertake some of those key checks. I'll start with the most important one, our obligations to keep the child safe. We need to hold some information about that child for our youngest learners to understand their context, to make sure we know who can collect them at the end of the school day. Mm. In the UK, we do that. I know in the US, we're more inclined to get on a school bus, but there are risks and measures and reports we store about young people for all the right reasons. And of course, if we want to know how they're developing and they're progressing well through our school, there's other data we need to keep about them. Mm. But it's lack of information and fear that sparks most of these types of challenges. Mm. If we were to flip it around and take a view of, we're going to be quite clear on all the tools we use, the data we gather, why we have that data, how long we keep it for and how we measure access to it. And that this is the point when that data is then deleted. For many parents, for many rational parents, that would be a sufficient explanation. Ironically, those same parents who have a problem with data will probably send the message through their Facebook app and not give a second question. But there will always be a subset that you can't rationalize with because we're entitled to different opinions. And if our view is strong enough, then no, no quantity of, of reasoning the other way will, will, will shape that view. But again, that's not a conversation that the teacher should be having. That's a conversation that the school should be having and being really clear about that message. And maybe it is one. And again, it's different by country, but certainly we will see there will be a much more of a collegiate approach between schools within a certain region where their senior leadership might have a policy they want to share or a communication with parents. And they'll consult with other schools. So maybe with other school districts in the US. And so across a region, there will be a, a consensus message where they're all operating to a, to a common approach to make sure that there is a degree of, you know, strength in being collective together. Right. And I think there's, there's another, there's another strand there, but most of the time it comes down from, from lack of understanding. Right. Right. And then I know you've spent a lot of time your secret ed tech diary was in part speaking to teachers about career paths, folks who care about education. If they wanted to get involved in ed tech, there are pathways there. You're also someone who's thought about growth within school leadership and pathways to get involved on that front. Do you have any advice for listeners who may want to get more engaged around pathways that you know, I could envision this ultimately addressing some of the challenges around teaching as a profession. If it was easier to have ways to take a stint in more of an administrative capacity or more of a school leadership or an ed tech capacity and yeah. then pivot back over time, I'd, I'd love to get a little of your thinking on pathways and career growth because it's a long time to be a professional and just being in the classroom, you know, folks are looking for, for pathways. Absolutely. I think it, I don't think it's unreasonable to consider the different pathways. I mean, 
actually, it wouldn't be good for the profession if educators got into the classroom and said, well, that's me done until retirement. I'm going to stick with this because actually, even if we don't have any aspirations to change our roles, the way we all learn is by being outward facing. We've got to look elsewhere. We can't always reflect in the same way as, as a school. If our strategy for, for professional development is always within the cohort of staff in our school, how on earth can we possibly know what else is out there, the things we can learn? So I think in many ways, the last couple of years has really reminded us that strategically, one of the most important things for an organization is to start thinking about more outward facing engagement. And one way you do that is by sending staff, giving them the opportunity to go and learn professionally in different settings, whether that's professional qualifications, courses, schools, different groups. And of course, if you're involved in technology, then there's whether it's the Google innovation groups, Microsoft innovative experts, there are all sorts of different pathways that a school could support. Now, the natural persuasion is, well, that might cost time because that teacher will be out of the classroom and we're going to have to cover it. But it's a little bit like the conversation. Let's take a, a regular business. You know, I've got hundred staff and I take a strategy of saying, I don't want to spend the money training them. You know, why don't you train them out? Well, if I give them all these great qualifications, all that's going to happen is they'll be really recruitable and they'll all leave. And the response to it is what's worse than losing your most able staff. And the answer is keeping your least able. And the same applies in a school. Are you going to measure your success by saying, by giving none of our staff, any CPD, we've saved money and they're still here 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Well, great, but you're not doing a service to your learners, are you? And so I think that mindset of actually send them out, get their experiences, bring them back in, and then we can all benefit from them, all the staff, if we provide the right platform. And, and that comes into a topic I often talk about, which is kind of signposting the flag bearers in your school. Hmm. If people are developing particular qualifications or experiences, whether it's technology, whether it's about pupil behavioral skills, whether it's about how we support and nurture some of our children with, with, with different challenges, we don't want that person to come back informed and refreshed and ready to go and nobody else know about it we need to signpost if you've got queries on this area fred's the new person to speak to jane is the new person to speak to and make sure that that person has an opportunity to share some highlights top tips and and, and mentor others who want to develop those areas mm -hmm. i think it's the same for school leaders you know there's a I guess we all have a, a certain tendency, which is none of us are particularly inclined to put our hands up and say, I don't know, you know, we, particularly as at leadership, we want to make sure that all of our staff have confidence in us because we've got all the answers, you know, and hello, none of us have got all the answers, no matter how much we might try and claim otherwise. Mm. And actually school leadership, particularly as we move up the ranks, we've got to recognize that the reason we've been a successful teacher going through the stages of, of, of within our schools. It's because we've got those fantastic skills, whether it's for pedagogy, pupil relationships, management of data and so on. But actually the key skills as we get up to the top of the tree and we want to progress in our careers might be more about our HR skills and our strategic thinking skills and our leadership skills and, and how we can mentor and communicate effectively what we know to others. That's a whole different skill set. And yet we assume the most able teacher will magically have all those skills. I see often in the UK, we have amazing teachers who've become head teachers of schools and then become the senior role in a, in a district or a multi-academy trust as we have. 
and suddenly they're expected to be experts on financial planning and management and strategic interventions and how to source external funding and all these other strands. Mm. And the reality is, well, that's never going to happen. So if we have a mindset of actually it's, it's a positive when people ask to go for training, it's got to be relevant. I mean, it's not an open season that everybody can have three months of the year away on training courses. It's got to be equitable for the school and capacity and resource, but it needs to be fostered more. We've also seen much like we're doing here, there, there are so many more places now we can go online where we can consume information at a time that suits us. Yeah. Podcasts, developing your, your personal learning network. I, I'm a big Twitter fan. Some people hate Twitter and social media. Some would rather go TikToking or Instagramming. It doesn't matter. The point is, if you wish, it's a great way to meet people of a like mind, to discuss topics via a hashtag if necessary. You can find alignment and topics where if you've got a question, there's always somebody out there willing to share advice and opinion or a link to a resource or something else. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't available 20 years ago. And we should recognize that it's a valuable resource. You know, the same way as we go Googling stuff now, rather than heading to a library and finding an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. Don't take it for granted. The skill, back to my earlier point about skills with learners is, because if I Google it, do I have the tools personally to actually validate whether that information's right? Right. To check its authenticity, to question it, to challenge it, or do I just take it as given? Right. And, and those are things we take for granted as adults. Although the truth be known, we all get caught out. I mean, as all of us, I'm sure at some point have had an email from somebody that we've just assumed is a trusted source when its intention was far more nefarious, you know, so, so none of us are, are invulnerable to that. But I think all these things interlink as part of that bigger conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the connection to the, the private sector as the CEO of a company it makes a lot of sense where a lot of the thinking has evolved perhaps faster around the importance of culture and culture as a competitive advantage and challenges to your culture as being more of an existential threat. I think there's more of a perception that the institutional and bureaucratic culture of education frequently allows for some inefficiency to just stay in the system for some period of time. I think that's, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, it's, I think it's labeled around the world. When we think of public sector services, government managed and funded services, it, it's often convenient. I'd, I'd argue often the narrative comes from the, the private sector, that it's less efficient and that it's, you know, more bloated in bureaucracy and administration. I mean, sometimes we recognize that that's because actually the systems are built based on robustness and delivery of service, not on profitability. And that actually, if we had it run with less bureaucracy by a private company, we probably wouldn't get the same quality and level of service. So we shouldn't dismiss that structure. Right. What I do think is what we're grappling with in education at the moment is how we embrace innovation, where it's relevant for the benefit of teaching and learning and for our learners. Right. And as a rule that those tried and tested systems are much harder to flex quickly. Right. It's the oil, oil tanker syndrome, trying to turn the, the ship. Right. It takes time. And so it was one of the few positives, and let's be honest, there were very few. If we think about the pandemic, it was actually a bit of a green light for educators for schools to go out and try new things. They had no choice. They had to. Yeah. And, and actually taking risks is the real you know, the, the real catalyst to innovation, mm -hmm. as long as you, you, you accept the fact that when you take risks, you will fail on things. And if people don't judge you for that failure, but take it as part of the learning journey, mm -hmm. then, then, then you try things. 
And, and without that kick up the backside, that kind of encouragement to do it, what we find is because we're always judged on this one measure at the end of each year and so on, that actually we're not really incentivizing the profession to go out and try new things. I mean, there are loads of amazing people who are, but they're really not incentivized to. Mm-hmm. It, and, and I think we miss the opportunity. Now, that's not to suggest that the system's completely broken because there's loads of things that are tried and tested that, that work just fine in education. But that's the same in business. There's things we do in business we've been doing for 50 years. It's finding that 10%, that 20% that will allow us to do things better. Mm. As long as we've got imbalance to that, a mindset to how will we evidence it and how will we measure impact? So we're not yeah. just doing stuff because it's cool, but we're doing stuff where we actually can see there's some positive purpose to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you could see how there is a lure there, you know, with the great resignation, the great reshuffle that's happening, where if you do have that hunger for innovation and you, you don't feel like the incentives are there within a traditional education role, folks do gravitate to ed tech. And that is a place where you know, I, I think you've done a service to the community around showing that there are pathways, there are career choices we can make. It just does beg some questions around if we don't sustain the teaching profession as a noble profession in and of itself, what's ultimately going to happen to our schools? If the brain drain leads to greater pastures, what's going to happen? These are all symbiotic because let's be honest. Good edtech products are co-produced with educators. They're mm-hmm. not done in a separate box away from education and then delivered to the front door of the school and say, there you go, that one, right. mir- miracle effect. Or any good solution is co-produced with the people that are going to use it, the people who understand where the, the challenges and the benefits are. Yeah. And so understanding that, we kind of get to this point of recognizing that this is one big ecosystem. And, and if you think ecosystem, it then provides this extra thought, bigger picture, that there are more opportunities for those people with those really transferable skills, that experience in education, to segue and work in education in different ways. And for some, that's taking a step, spending half their time consulting or working for an ed tech firm and half their time teaching. Yeah. Others, it's providing guidance, leadership support. Some, it's just about, I love the profession, I love teaching. I want to challenge and develop myself by acquiring additional skills with new technologies or new skill sets. And that allows me to keep my level of motivation and my reason to keep going in the education space. And if school leaders don't get that, then frankly, shame on them. Because why would they expect someone to not want to keep bettering themselves yet model in the classroom to their learners? You should always be striving for more. There's no ceiling to what you can achieve if you want to do it. Yeah. We want to encourage a thirst for hunger and knowledge, but not for our, for our teachers. I mean, it, right. it's one of those things where, you know, rule number one, model what you want your learners to achieve. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, we're getting closer to time, but we haven't gone deep into any of the, the buzzworthy trends in the technology itself. I've heard many folks talk about online tutoring, high dosage tutoring is a new term of phrase that's out there. There's a lot of talk about AI. I, I know you've talked on a previous engagement around yeah. cybersecurity. Play a little bit of buzzword bingo. Are there trends emerging on the technology side that you think are going to be particularly relevant for folks to pay attention to? I think you've touched on a few top topics at the moment that are probably garnering most of the narrative and conversation. Effective and growing development and use of data with a, a yin and a yang to privacy and 
how we make sure that we're, we're using what we need and know more than we need. And probably most importantly, not sharing it with others that don't need it for commercial gain. There's one big area. Mm -hmm. Effective use of AI for personalized learning pathways and for improving the quality of feedback to, to learners, but with the caveat not to replace good teaching and learning, but to complement, I think is another area that's really there. Uh, one that I think is a really good topic, it's not that tech focused, although some tools to support it, is actually taking the concept of both student and staff well-being seriously, mm -hmm. actually recognizing that some of the other things we do might have a direct impact on well-being. But if children aren't in the right place to learn, you can teach them all the knowledge you like. It's not going to stick. Yeah. And if your staff aren't in the right place to teach, why would we expect to get high-performing lessons and content? So I think that's another area of the well-being side. Cybersecurity, I think there's an increasing threat, particularly because of recent events in Eastern Europe that amplifies the concerns around that. I think that's something that falls on the shoulders of our district IT administrators and teams, but we would be very foolish not to. And of course, as we move more to a cloud-based ecosystem, we also need to have the reassurances from those providers for our services that they've got the right measures in place. Yeah. So I think that flies together. Probably the last one that crops up is the, the opportunities and potential, but also the risks surrounding things like the metaverse. You know, we've, we've all gone on a journey of seeing the, the role of AI and VR in stimulating learning. And I think we're probably honest and fair to say half of the experiences have been really funky and cool, but maybe haven't really aligned with the learning pathway. But there are also some that have proven to be really good and effective in engaging some of our disengaged learners, playing to the strengths of different learners, you know, and sometimes not realizing your learning is a great way to make sure you are learning. The metaverse for me has huge potentials of opportunity, assuming we've got some digital equity. So everyone's got access and got the headsets or whatever they need to allow children to experience things that they wouldn't otherwise have access to virtual museums, zoos, places around the world, learning experiences make connections classroom to classroom with groups and share project work and all the things that would really inspire and enrich learning. But on the flip side, we have that, that we're first that digital equity concern, but the second is, and who's policing it? Who's going to keep our learners safe in there? Who's going to prevent bullying or inappropriate conversations or young people being radicalized and all the rest that goes with it. Right. So sadly, I come more with more with questions than answers on this topic. I think would be foolish. It's the natural tendency is just to close our eyes and not, not go there. But I think the best, best approach is always is to go there and challenge, to go there and question before we go there with our learners. But it's incumbent on us to kind of be part of the conversation, not just ignore it. Awesome. We've covered quite a bit. Al, always fun having you on as we're turning the final poll. No, what are we doing? Heading for the checkered flag. <laughs> are we rounding the far turn? Yes. And we're heading towards the checkered flag. There we go. Al, thank you. Anything we haven't talked about so far that you wanted to make sure we covered? And then I'd love to get some concluding thoughts from you so that folks, if they're trying to walk away from this conversation with something to remember, we give you a chance to sum up your thoughts. Well, obviously I don't want to cover everything because otherwise I'll miss the opportunity for future fridge magnets. So that's a really important one. Yeah. Now I think we've covered most things. You know, I think the, the point is there's a lot of opportunity out there. The biggest message I always say, having the luxury of traveling around the world is to remind educators you're not alone. There's the same challenges, the same pressures, wherever you are around the world, 
And whilst there will always be those that choose through frustration or lack of information to challenge, question, or try and undermine the profession, the vast majority know what an amazing job our teachers and support staff do. And I think we have an obligation to make sure we stick together and protect what is so fundamental to our society. Awesome. Great words of wisdom from Al Kingsley, the author of My Secret EdTech Diary. He's the CEO of NetSupport out of the UK, involved in school systems in a number of different ways. Great follow on Twitter and on LinkedIn, as long as you don't get envious of his travels around the world. Al, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. My pleasure. Take care. Awesome. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed it as much as we did. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 